0: When, where you see great moods of the church, it is usually a very small number of people who gather together and to start taking things seriously.
1: Well, hello, friends. We are so excited you are back with us for another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast.
2: Leish, it's kind of sad we're coming to the end of a great summer, but... It does feel significant. I don't know how it feels for you and Michael as you guys are going into the fall at Village Calgary, but I know for us and lots of pastors across Canada, this fall feels significant. It feels like just coming out of COVID, and I know for a lot of churches they've been meeting throughout the summer, but it feels like a real launch of something new. And I'm praying, and I think we could pray together that this would be like a new season for the church in Canada and that God would pour out His Spirit And that for everyone launching something fresh or feeling that sense of relaunch, that there'd just be, that you'd be met with, you know, the presence of God and a sense of encouragement, excitement and boldness and mission. So I'm really excited going into the fall.
1: No, that's so good. I know we are excited to get going this fall relaunch. And I'm so excited about the lineup that we have here on the podcast. So strong. I know you know it, but let's share it with our listeners what they can get excited for. Kara Powell from Fuller Theological Seminary. We got Keith Taylor, who just wrapped up 30 years as the lead pastor at Beulah Alliance in Edmonton. Rich Velotis from New Life in New York. Your buddy, Sid Coop. He's going to be talking all things youth ministry Alan Hirsch, this is a powerful lineup, and I'm, I'm I'm so excited.
2: Yeah, we love doing this. We love bringing global voices who are experts or thought leaders in different areas. And we love championing Canadian voices and hearing from thought leaders within our own country and doing dynamic work and hearing the stories of what God's up to in our nation. And we'd love to hear from you. And if there are leaders that you would love to see profile, like some of the best recommendations have come from a listener. It's just like, have you, have you read this book? Or have you guys seen this voice? And some of the best thinkers right now are not the most popular, but you might be tapping into them. And we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us anytime at contact at ccln.ca.
1: Well, tell us a little bit about today's guest, Aaron White, just before we get started.
2: Aaron is the co-national director of 24-7 Prayer Canada. And I got to know Aaron because when I moved to Vancouver and I knew him beforehand, but when I moved to Vancouver to plant a church, I wanted to connect with people who love the city, who have been serving the city. And Aaron's one of those guys who has been praying and serving and pastoring the city for a long time. And he has given his life in a lot of ways to those, the least of these people who are most marginalized. And for him, it's just, he lives and breathes just such an integrated, holistic, generous faith. And, uh... I really look up to Aaron and I remember the first time we met together, I was kind of thinking, oh man, this guy's going to tell me all the stuff that I don't know about the city of Vancouver, but his heart was so generous. He's so generous to teach and help lead us. And when it comes to conversations around the poor, the marginalized, and where you can find Jesus popping up in a city like Vancouver, any city across Canada, he's just such an encouraging voice. And so I know people will love getting to hear more of our conversation that we get to share today.
1: So great. So let's just give a listen to this conversation with Aaron
2: White. Well, Aaron, I got to say that I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Um, You and I know each other as friends here in Vancouver, both trying to serve and love this city in the name of Jesus and lots of friends in common. But a little while ago, we had you on here for a short conversation on your most recent book. And I remember, I think we talked for 10 minutes and I was like, I wish that was an hour. So here we are in full form. Thanks for hanging out with me today, buddy.
0: Yeah, thanks for the invitation.
2: And I want to talk about um, uh, ministry and life with the poor, the addicted. I want to talk about prayer, 24-7 prayer. But before we go into those themes, I want to talk about something you do every year, which is a movie recommendation roundup. You are not just a savant of theology or prayer. You are a great cultural commentator. You, it's like, dude, it's amazing. So just talk to me about this. This is obviously not the main topic of the conversation, but I just want you to talk a little bit about how you found yourself doing movie reviews that are so good. I recommend them to everybody. I love it.
0: Well, i actually started with books. So so I began just writing down all the books that I read in a year. And I read a lot of books in a year. And, and then I started writing down just little bits about them because I wanted to be able to recommend. One of my favorite things is to recommend... The right book to the right person yeah and uh, and it helps me to remember what i 've been reading and and so I started doing that and putting that on Facebook just as a lark and didn 't think anyone was really going to care and and people really were interested and would start to then get the books from that list based on some recommendations I made so I said, well, I watch a lot of movies as well, so started doing that with movies at the end of the year, and I usually give my top five that i that I enjoyed and other ones that maybe weren 't so good, ones that i 'd watched again and um, again, it's just a way to to remember what I've been putting into my brain, um, which I think is helpful that that we don't just consume things. Because as a reader, because I read very fast and I read a lot, I could just kind of consume stuff and then keep going. But this way, it allows me to reflect and meditate on it a little bit. And same with movies. So that's kind of what I do at the end of every year.
2: Do you want to do, um, like, I know that our listener base is, that one thing I know they love is book recommendations, Mm. Uh, I, do you want to make some book recommendations, like Aaron White's, for for pastors of Canadian churches? Oh man, what is Aaron's White? I mean, this is this is tough. You, we can do it as a follow up if you want.
0: Well, but no, off, I mean,
2: <laughs> off the dome, take us somewhere, man.
0: There, there is a book that I read recently that I really should have read a long time ago. That I think everybody, every pastor, should read, and it's a narrative. It's it's a it's a fiction book. By Marilyn Robinson, called Gilead. I don't know if you've hmm. read it. No, um, it is. It is so beautiful. It's about an old pastor who has uh, he married late and he has a young son, and he's writing letters to his young son as he knows he's about to or he's going to be dying fairly soon, and he's just writing about a a life of faithfulness. Hmm. And the reason I it, it's it's not pollyannish it's it's not romanticized it's not idealized like it's real life it's real struggle um but it's faithful Mm -hmm. and i kind of was always waiting in this while reading this book i was waiting for the moment where it turns out he did something horrifically unfaithful or gave up or whatever and it doesn't i don't want to spoil it but um but you don't get a lot of fiction certainly about pastors who just mm. carry on and, and they just endure and they persevere. And it's very beautiful Again, very honest, very humble, but uh, a really excellent book to read. Gilead oh, by cool. Marilyn Robinson.
2: It makes me think of um, Eugene Peterson. You know, I haven't had a chance to read the new biographical work that's out. I'm looking forward to it. But he confronts like his whole being, like not just what he's written, but how he carried himself. And sometimes the public rebuke of modern church, but more just the rebuke that was his life mm-hmm. of like a hurried, productive, uh, growth driven vision of, uh, pastoral leadership. And I think I, I think if I was in the room, no, if I was in the room with Eugene, I would never say anything, right. but if I was, if I was without him in the room talking about his book, the pastor, ever it might be. I'd want to, I'd wrestle with it. Like some of it, some of it like appropriately convicts me and some of it, I'm like, I don't know if that's fully it, but what is this idea that you're getting at about this faithfulness of a pastor? Like there's more to it. Like speak to that a little bit. Cause I know you've thought this through.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think what she gives us a picture of and what some of the, I think some of the older generation, and I'm not trying to romanticize anything, but had a sense of was there is a calling something and it can be the pastorship or it can be other things, but, but there's a, you know, again, to use Peterson's phrase, the long obedience in the same direction, there's something really powerful about that. Mm. And, and it's not always in the moment in, in the day, even in the season, it's not always personally fulfilling, Um, but it is still a long obedience in the same direction. And, and I don't think that's a thing that our culture really. Uh, and when I say culture, that I mean all kinds of culture. I mean church sure. culture. I mean society. I mean all this. I don't think it's something that we really emphasize very much. We emphasize mm. more, um, you know, being personally fulfilled, being being uh, personally satisfied, or becoming our best selves, or all these things. When when I think what is being described in this book is more a sense of um, serving giving one's life to something beautiful and that that's worth one's life. That's, and that's hmm. not just worth one's life in the moment of martyrdom. It's worth one's life in the long uh, walk of obedience.
2: Hmm. And, and on a personal level for you, Aaron, like, and I'd love for us to take some time to chat about your story of ministry, but how is that invitation to a long obedience in the same direction, like manifesting it in your life right now? Like, where is that? Hmm that reality spurring you
0: on I was I was reflecting on this just this month that in our community I live in a community home with 13 people my family and others we've been living in this particular home in the downtown side for eight years and we've been living in the the downtown side as a whole for uh, 17 years and seen lots of different seasons lots of people come and go and and I was I was just thinking what have we actually learned (laughs) What, what have we grown in? What are we good at? Uh, and, and there's lots that we've learned just through horrible <laughs> failure and mistake and and um, and other things. But but I thought, you know, I think I think we're actually we've learned some patience. Hmm. And then I thought, yeah, like that. The First Corinthians 13: Love is patient. I so said, we've got to the first one. Love is patient. <laughs> there's there's a lot more to do. But but I think. We're starting to understand the first one that that if you can be patient with mm. people, even with people in your own home, if you can be patient, then it gives you the opportunity to do those other things. But if you're impatient, you don't even have the time to get to kindness. Mm. So I think that we've been learning that, and that the Lord is patient with us, and uh, and so and I, and I was reflecting on just people who I think I've I've let down in various ways who. Have been patient with me, and and how it is so evocative of love, and so um, I, I, I think again, I think this is something in really short supply um, mm. in in our in our culture, in our in our sense of what even what ministry is, is the the patience for the long haul.
2: Mm. Can you give people who maybe aren't familiar with Vancouver a little window into into the downtown east side? And I, you and I are friends on Facebook, and so I'll see on occasions. You you're a great person to have because of your book recommendations, your film recommendations, your commentary. Um, But also sometimes you'll say, Hey, there's somebody dying in front of my house right now. And I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating at all. Like this is literally the kinds of updates you say, we need you to pray right now, or we lost someone like it's, it's um, none of it's dressed up. None of it's, it's just the real life of where you are living and an invitation to invite people to pray and gather around that. Can you give, for those that don't know it, just Just some of the beauty of it, some of the collectiveness of it, and some of the challenges that the people that you have neighbors and friends that are facing.
0: Yeah, the downtown east side is is a it's a unique neighborhood. I've never been anywhere like it. The the closest might be some areas of Amsterdam or the Tenderloin district in San Francisco. Um, But it it really Vancouver is always described as one of the most livable cities in the world, one of the most desirable, the highest. Um, you know, dollar per per square foot of property, all that kind of thing. Um, and then there's this one area which, historically, for you know, since the '80s, has really been in mm. trouble for a lot of reasons. Um, the The federal housing strategy was canceled. Um, there was some mental health decisions made in the province that shut down certain facilities, and and then a wave of new kind of drugs, powerful drugs, and uh, and HIV/ AIDS transmission and various things like that. And now just recently, a wave of fentanyl uh, mm-hmm. a, a crisis and, and overdose deaths alongside a huge amount of gentrification, all has led to this particular neighborhood. and it's kind of a perfect storm of things where it's a place where you you end up. and and it, as such, it's actually kind of a beautiful place. Physically, it's, it's even really quite beautiful. I, I can mm-hmm. see the mountains from my window. It's near the ocean. Um, it's within walking distance of downtown. It's quite nice. But, but it's it's an area, it used to be called the 24 block. Now it's probably about the 10 or 12 block um, where, where it used to be known as Canada's or North America's poorest Postal Code and the highest rate of um, intravenous drug use in the Western world and HIV, AIDS transmission and so on and people have described it as 10 blocks of hell and and all this kind of thing but we we really call it home and and it's a place that we love mm-hmm. and so when people come and visit and often that people come to visit in order to see just like to be shocked yeah. by things and and I'll usually try if I have an opportunity I'll take them on what I call a tour of beauty to 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 walk around and and see what is really beautiful about a place because if all you see is that which is painful that which is harmful, that which is hurting people, then you'll just want to wipe it off the map. And, and often actually on maps of Vancouver, at least in the past, they used to put the, the compass right over the downtown east side because they didn't want mm. tourists actually coming down to this area. Um, but, uh, but if you see something beautiful, then you'll want to fight for it. And there's mm. a lot of beauty here. There's, there's more people, more neighbors who know each other's names Mm. more uh, people who care about each other. The, the overdose rate is incredibly high here, but actually the death rate has is not primarily here um, because people see each other, they know each other, and they're really quick to help. So just a couple weeks ago, there was a man who overdosed uh, right next to our house, and he was gone. But, uh, but there was a lady from the other side who started yelling and, and helping and saying, we need help, and, and a lot of us came out. From a lot of lady from the street and people from the the, the Vivian Hotel and, and our family and brought them back, uh, and and that happens all the time and people mm-hmm. really do care about each other. So and and the church in the downtown side loves each other well and mm. cooperates well, coordinates together and and participates in things. And it's in a way that I've not seen before. Wow. So there's an immense amount of. Of pain, of, of unprocessed pain and hurt and grief and addiction and mental illness and, and abuse in this neighborhood. But there all those things exist in your neighborhoods as well. Just mm-hmm. that this is really, really visible here. And it's maybe, maybe to certain extremes in my neighborhood. Um, but there's other things as well that make it easy. There's a deep openness and vulnerability. Uh, there's a care for neighbors. Um, when I walk my kids and I've, I've raised my kids in the neighborhood, when I walk my kids around the street, people go kids on the block and they put their drugs away often. And so there, there is a deep beauty and there is a deep, yeah. um, and so, yeah, I, I, this is where I love to be.
2: Mm-hmm. And for your wife and yourself, that was a real decision. Like you don't, you make a decision to live there. Um, I think you mentioned 18 years ago, mm-hmm. you moved in there, you raised your kids there what um what was god doing in your hearts and in your lives that made that decision for you
0: well i mean the the proximate cause we were living in ontario and and working for the salvation army in ontario and we kind of knew that that was coming to an end that particular season and we were wondering what to do next and we knew we had an option of moving and being part of what was called a, a 614, an incarnational community of the Salvation Army in the downtown Eastside. And we had been part of something like that in Regent Park in Toronto, which is another really unique neighborhood. And uh, and I had spent time in the downtown side in the past. And so we were trying to figure out, trying to discern, is this where the Lord wants us to go? And we weren't sure. And then uh, my wife told me that she was pregnant with our third child. And we just both instantly knew, oh... We're supposed to move to the downtown east side, hmm. and one of the founding really passages of our community was that the Lord sets the lonely in family, and so we just had this awareness. I think, and it was very uh, not fully formed in any way, but that if the Lord's going to set the lonely in families, there better be families there hmm. uh, for the Lord to set into. And and when and family is is a really important concept in Scripture, and uh, but we tend to mean um, nuclear family—we tend to mean, you know, we tend to idolize that, honestly. And so, when I hear even people talk about a family-friendly church, I go, well, I, I sure hope that's actually a biblical sense of family, hmm. um, because we're supposed to be brothers and sisters, and particularly with those who, um, you know, are are lonely and those who've been excluded and those who've been on the edge and and not not able to come in, uh, the untouchable." So uh, that's what we thought the Lord was calling us to. And, and one of the ways that we lived that out when we had our child, our, our little boy, Noah, when we first moved here, we had a dedication ceremony down in Crab Park down at the beach. We invited everybody mm-hmm. in the community and and handed him around to everybody to get uh, their blessing. And there's about a hundred people there and grandparents and people from, you know, the church. And then a lot of our friends who were um, women who had been prostituted and men who were homeless and, and addicts. And, and, um, and we just passed them to everybody. And some mm. of the guys were clearly uncomfortable, and they said, "Well, like, you know, I know you don't want me to hold your baby." And we said, "Well, no, no. Are you withholding your blessing from our child?" Mm. And they, "Oh, no, no." And so they they grab him and they pray for him. And, and and years later, they would come and say, "Hey, remember when I blessed wow. your child?" I said, "Yeah, I remember. It was significant." And so we really wanted to get that sense of. um when we're giving our, our children and our lives and our stuff back to God, it really, that's what it means. And it, it's not theoretical and it's not sentimental, it's actual. And the way that he seems to want us to worship him is uh, to do justly and to walk humbly and to love mercy and, uh, and to, to care for uh, our brothers and sisters.
2: Hmm. Thanks for sharing that, dude. I remember when we hung out a little while ago, I was early on the church planning journey. I'm still really early on it here in Vancouver. I've only lived in, I've lived in the suburbs of Vancouver my whole life, but lived in Vancouver proper for just under two years. And, um, you and I met and I asked a question, something like, Hey, what is a church like ours? Like, what are we to do? We see the need, massive addiction, uh, uh, poverty, homelessness, uh, employment issues, all this stuff. And we see the need. It's not the only needs in the city. We want to be part of it. And I want to just bring people into the conversation you had because you said some things that I found helpful and I'm still thinking about and I don't think we're done with the conversation. But for anyone listening as a pastor uh, who's in a city and every city has it, suburbs included, says, I see this need. I want to participate in God's love moving towards those who most typically might feel in the margins. Um, what advice, thoughts would you give us?
0: If I remember correctly, the thing, one of the things I said to you is we don't actually need the, more people moving into our neighborhood. Um, we don't need a, even more churches in our neighborhood. There's lots of churches in our neighborhood. We need the church to be the church in its own neighborhood. Um, and if the church is the church in its own neighborhood, genuinely the church, then we will be blessed. Then, then, then our whole society will be blessed. Because often we think, and, and I know when we moved in, we probably had this thought. I know we had this thought um, that we were going to go and bring Jesus to the poor. And we're kind of shocked to discover that Jesus was already here.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and that's kind of frustrating because now what do we do? Uh, and, and it turned out to be a really great place to meet Jesus. So we're, we're really blessed in that. Um, but when groups do come down, I'm, I'm pretty careful to try and intercept them very very quickly and say, look, your your goal here is, is not to just hand out little bits of sandwiches and little bits of Jesus, um, because that's fairly undignifying um, to the people down here who many of whom already know Jesus and have already lived quite a significant life. And, and maybe an 18-year-old coming down and, and handing out a sandwich and then handing out life wisdom to a, a 45-year-old is, maybe that's not the right power dynamic to be taking. Um, so... Partly, what I say is, and we do this training with in twenty four seven prayer around this very specifically, um, because there we can try and do justice and mission out of really um, good intentions, but out of maybe not a good place ultimately. Hmm. And what I mean by that is, uh, if if we're doing it out of a sense of guilt uh, or shame or a knee-jerk reaction to something, then it's probably not terribly considered. And, and it, so what we do is we teach people how to pray, and that the central act of, of what we were made for is to pray. We were made hmm. to be in fellowship with God in Christ by his Spirit forever. And that, that having that relationship right with God is going to lead to right relationship with all the other relationships because the brokenness of that relationship with God led to the brokenness of the other relationships. And they understand this even in the 12-step the programs, that the first three steps are all about trying to get right with God. You can't start to try and make amends with others or, or make confession or anything like that um, if you haven't done that. So prayer is what we're made for. And so we, we mm. talk to, to groups about how to pray and how to meet this God who made you and who loves you. And, and when we do that, though, we know that it's going to lead to good mission and good justice. We know this. Sometimes when people say, oh, you know, how's your ministry to the poor? And I'll always respond, oh, we don't minister to the poor. We minister to the Lord. Mm. And people go, whoa, wait a minute, don't you care about the poor? And I will go, oh, don't you know the Lord? Because when you're ministering to the Lord, when you're, when you're seeking his heart and seeing his face and hearing what, what God wants, you're going to find that he wants you to love your neighbors. Mm. And in particular, you're going to find that he wants you to love the poor and be loved by the poor. And so what we do is we say, yeah, we were made to pray first and foremost. But we also know, according to Ephesians 3.10, it says that we were made in Christ Jesus to do the good works that God prepared beforehand for us to do. In Christ, not just on our own, but in Christ, we were made for this, to do good things that God has prepared for us. So when we meet with God in Christ, he's going to show us people that he loves. And and Mm -hmm. I, I really learned this in a prayer room. I was kind of despondent and just thinking, God, I could expend every resource I have in one block in my neighborhood. And I said, what am I supposed to do? I Mm. I don't have it. And, and I just, I don't know. I can't say it was verbal, but I could just got this sense of God saying, well, would you look at me? And so I did. And he said, Oh, finally, you're, you're looking away from yourself for a second. Now look at me and I want to show you who I love. And I want to show you who I want you to love. Mm. And it wasn't everybody. It wasn't humanity. It wasn't the poor. There were individuals. There were specific people that God was saying, I want you to go and love these people. So what I say, what we teach churches to do is to learn how to discern that, how to pray Mm. well, and then to discern who is the neighbor that God is telling us to love. And what are the things right now that they're real issues, but they actually are not, that's not on our shoulders right now. Yeah. That's not, we haven't been given that Mm. we've been given our neighbor who is our neighbor and then mission means going and putting our feet on the ground beside our neighbor and hearing what they have to say. And then justice becomes listening to the Lord and listening to our neighbor and joining our voice to theirs. Mm. And so it is all an enacted embodied prayer that we begin by encountering God in the place of prayer. And then we encounter God in the face of the neighbor. And then we, we listen to what the Lord is saying and try and join our voice to that, to, to God's and to our neighbors. Hmm.
2: There's so many questions I want to ask. I just love listening to you share, dude. Um, And I'm really grateful for it. And uh, you know, in some cases there's people that we chat with on here and, you know, they're not in the same city as me. And uh you're in the same city. And I just really do hope we can continue to grow in friendship because I just know there's lots for me to learn. Cause I think there's a part for me where I go, okay, I think I hear you. And my primary church planning strategy has been walking and praying, which has just been great. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember you used to hashtag on if you still do, pray everywhere. And I just yeah. I just love it. Like I just it just has the sense of being able to like, Hey, I can turn this into a place of encounter with the living God and invite him into this space. And, and so I just walk, I walk the city, you know, and, and then, um, and then the, naturally God brings like neighbors into our life. The parents of our, that our kids go to school with and mm-hmm. every neighborhood in Vancouver is so eclectic. Um, but then all, if I'm watching the news and I'm particularly drawn to the reality, there's another fentanyl death or overdose. Mm-hmm and I sense my role as a leader in my church, not a big church, but with the people, I said, what can we do? Like, I don't want to do nothing. Like, do you know what I mean? I don't want to hear news Mm -hmm. like that. That's so close to home. Like I can almost see out this window, like just beyond that building is, is where you are. Um, and I want, so is, so then I go like, which organizations are thriving that I, I can at least personally give money to, or like, you know, who can I encourage? Like, at that point, a church leader saying, "I don't want to do nothing." What's the step in that moment?
0: And it's—I mean—I think it's—it's it's good to to do that to have that that heart. In a way, I mean, one of the things that happened when the first lockdown happened in Vancouver was—you know—the messaging was "stay home and save lives," and people took up that hashtag with a great deal of vigor and zeal, and and sometimes some self righteousness. And I thought, yeah, if you have the option of doing that, that's great. Um, but in my neighborhood, that actually doesn't really save lives. Right. Um, in fact, it costs lives to do that. And people don't have the option of doing that. And and when the library is closed, and that's where people go just to be, there's no other place to be. And they can go on the internet there, and then, but they can't go there. And then the, the um, community centers are closed, and the churches are closed, and the places that give up food are closed. And... You know, what are you supposed to do? And one of the beautiful things that happened, so I work with Jacob's Well in the neighborhood, and, and we said, well, we don't close. We have to alter things. We have to change things around. But, but our, our job here now is to make sure that people are seen, that they're connected with, that they don't die of isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we needed help. We needed some serious help. And the church rocked up. Before the government rocked up, the church understood there are people who are not going to get to eat now because things are closed. And so we just were really beset by food uh, that was brought by the church and paid for by the church. Mm. We we looked at we did um, took care of uh, groceries. I think for fifty families wow. for six months. Um, you know, every every week we were giving we were handing out groceries and taking that out to people because they couldn't go out. They couldn't get it. Grocery stores were clo- the local grocery store was closed. And we looked at the budget, how much we had spent. And I think it was, and I don't want to, don't quote me on this, but I think it was something like $149 is what Jacob's well spent. Hmm. Or five or six months of taking care of 50 families. Hmm. Um, and, and it was because the church stepped up. So, but the, those churches were in relationship with us. Right. A partnership. And the really important thing is that it is mutual. Mm. that if you get the sense of well we just have to bless the downtown side but the downtown side has nothing to give us then then we actually don't don't do that mm. we don't want that relationship um we've i've had lots of groups come down i remember this one kid i, I keep i i hope at some point he maybe hears one of this i don't know but I keep using his, him as an example. Could
2: you uh, imagine if Josh, who's doing production, was the kid?
0: It was the kid, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he can like show
2: up and be like, actually, or it's like Maury Povich. I'm like,
0: yeah, is that the name Here's of the, the talk guy. show guy? <laughs> yeah. I bring him in. <laughs> Here he is, poor poor kid. But but he was he was only parroting what he had heard. So he was part of a group that had come down and and he, he started by saying, "I said, what did you do today?" It was, it was a big group, and he said, "Oh, I painted someone's door in one of these slum hotels." I said, oh, great, well, was the person there? Who? He's like, yeah, yeah, he was there. I'm like, oh, did he help you paint? He said, no. I said, oh, was he, did he have arms? He's like, yeah. I'm like, well, then why didn't he help you paint? The guy goes, well, I don't know. I'm like, well, then why did you paint his door? Like, was he capable of painting a door? Like, it's just the sense of this person is not capable of, of helping. And, and I said, well, what did you come down here to do? And the kid said, well, I, I came down here to bless the poor and expect nothing in return. Mm. And I said, well, why would you expect nothing from my friends? Why would you expect that they have nothing to give you? And that's some of the teaching that we do with our, our community here at Jacob's Well is to say, um, hey, we receive a lot of blessing, but actually you have a blessing to give. And mm. that we want you to be blessing the church. Everybody as much as the church is blessing us. And that's a big shift. That was a huge shift for me when I first started working as an 18-year-old in the downtown side at a shelter. Um, was I thought, well, I'm coming out down here to do some work and suddenly made friends with people in the shelter who blessed me enormously. And I hadn't considered the possibility of that. Hmm. And, and that changes everything. Once you realize that, that they are, people are not just uh, projects to bless, but they are fully realized beloved children of God who God has put there in order to be your blessing as well, that we are to bless one another. And uh and, and so once we realize that, I think that's where in that relationship, that's where we start to receive a mutual blessing, where mm-hmm. churches in the downtown east side and churches outside the downtown east side um can can actually draw closer to Jesus in our love for one another.
2: Hmm. I feel like that's. I don't want to say that's the thing I've learned. It's the thing I'm beginning to learn. Is um, yeah, it's 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 the relationship with not just you but great churches, great ministries who are doing great. They're not without need, um, but that two way street, like this this uh, mutually serving, loving, supporting, listening relationship. Yeah. And um, I'm just you 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 hear the challenge though, right? Because it's, it's undoing a lot of thinking. Um, and a lot of it well-meaning. I remember (laughs) I'm pretty much the kid. I remember one time it might've been Jacob's well, actually. Um, honestly, dude, God, I was on fire in my heart. I was just loving Jesus and living out my faith with my friends at school. And I remember being like, I need to help. I need to do something. So I think I might've messaged Jacob's well. And they said, get your own friends. Yeah. And I was heartbroken. I was like, I'm trying to help. Like, yeah. they just said, get your own friends. And like, that was like a mind bomb that's still going off in my head. And obviously that's probably not the first time you've heard that line before, right?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, Mother Teresa used that line when people wanted to come to Calcutta and she said, get your own Calcutta. You right. Know, like, you, you, we, and, and it's sort of, it's chasing the, the extreme. It's chasing the really visible and look, I, I, who am I to say I came here, you know? Right. And I, and I had some history here, but I came here. Um, but, but really, it's, you know, I, there are people who come, and the average stay is something like six months, you know, for mm-hmm. missionaries. And um, I think if you're going to go someplace, think about being there for life. Um, but there are areas of, of Vancouver that are nearly unchurched. And, and when groups come and say, we want to come and plant in the downtown east side. I will always say, have you considered uh, South Vancouver? You know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Um, mm-hmm. it's not as it's it's harder to take pictures of and make and and <laughs> you know look cool doing it. But uh, people need the church there, and and all these issues, as I said, they all exist in all these other neighborhoods. It's just really, really visible and accessible in mine. Mm. Um, and I say I've got the easy job because. You know, people are so open and, and, and vulnerable with one another here that in other near- neighborhoods, it's it's much more difficult.
2: Mm. One thing that you said to me was, and you, you mentioned this before, is like, we need you to be the church there. And then you gave me this picture of um, as people find health, as individuals find health, they need to be brought into a community. And that could even be your community, you said. Yeah. Something yeah. to that effect. Yeah. Um, what would it look like for local churches... Um, in any part, whether the suburb or the city, to become, how do I word this right? More welcoming, where people who maybe come from a passive addiction are actually making steps to, to say, hey, I'm actually trying to leave that world. How can we actually create communities where that's safe, welcoming, that they could actually experience a rich discipleship journey um, on that stage in their journey?
0: Yeah, and it's, it's such an important question because even like a great church and a church that wants to be welcoming um, somebody from a, a background, a really hard background, say in my neighborhood, if I was to say, well, why don't you go to this church? That person would likely still feel really out of place there. And, and the people in that church, however, well-intentioned will probably feel, oh, this is a bit of an awkward, awkward mix. And part of it. So part I wrote the book in part for this, the book recovering, to say that one of the shifts that has to happen is to realize that we're all um, in that exact same place. That we tend to think that our particular attachments, would, uh, are, which are usually socially acceptable attachments—work or Amazon, which is the middle-class crack—or uh, on, um, <laughs> you know, food or whatever it happens to be—these things are are. are they're acceptable. But if someone actually uses crack or crystal meth or heroin or whatever, then it's a different category of person. It's a different category of problems, a different category of addiction. And we have set up really, and actually not we have, I think that uh, inside the recovering community, um, really accepting, vulnerable, supportive communities have been created where people can go in and say, hey, who's, who's 10 years clean today? And they'll get, a, they'll get a cake, and who's got five years, and who's got one hour? And they'll be applauded, and they're welcomed in, and they can share whatever it is that they, they need to share. And, and you just don't see that often in mm-hmm. churches. And so people who I've been walking through recovery with go, like, I want to go to a church, but I, don't, I haven't yet found a church that has any understanding, I think, of what it means to surrender one's will to God what it means to to recognize that life is unmanageable and, and, you know, even the first couple steps. So, I I wrote the book in order to say to the church, we need to learn this from the recovery Mm. community. We need to learn what it means to start from blessed are the poor in spirit, which is the invitation into the humble life of Jesus. Um, and, And if we learn to do that alongside our friends in recovery, then that transition for somebody will be so much easier. What we used to do in our uh, church down here is um, we would have a, a one week where we'd focus on confession and the next week we'd focus on lament. And we'd just have a time, a 15 minute time in the middle of the service where anybody who wanted to just confess something would be able to do it. And it was awkward the first time, but we had a lot of folk in recovery in our, in our midst and they sort of realized what was going on and like, oh, okay. And they would get up and just, cause they're used to sharing with it and then, and just broke open the dams for other people Wow. that, oh, if they can share that, I can share this. And it just became a place where we could be open about things, not perfectly by any means, um, but that opened the door for, for people to go, oh, there's a place I can go. And so, um, I think that can be born again, out of relationship. If a church wants to start figuring that out, I mean, there are programs you can run like celebrate recovery or uh, the freedom sessions and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, but it's also just useful to, to look at where, where are the recovery meetings in your neighborhood mm. and can, is there a way that we can bless them and, right. and form relationship or where are their ministries that are working in that area? And are there ways that we can bless and, and learn from people? And that can be a real mutual blessing as well. Because as I said, having people who have walked through the really difficult spiritual work of recovering, the kind of spiritual work that I've almost never seen in churches, is such a boon to your church. Hmm. And and then having churches that know that, that people in my neighborhood, I can go, well, it's actually not always safe for them to stay here, but I could send you there into a really healthy place. That is a huge boon to our neighborhood.
2: Hmm. I'm... I'm really proud of my friend, Jason Roberts, who leads Wagner Hills farm in Langley. They've got a women's campus and a men's campus. And he's, he's got his own addiction story and then recovery at Wagner actually. And so then decades later, now he's leading it, which is just stunning. Mm-hmm. And he said, Hey, could you come out to a chapel and speak? You know, and this was a long time ago. And so, sure. Like, of course I love Jay and bro. I walked into the room and like the worship, it was but it just, it wasn't produced. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> but dude, it was fire, man. The presence yeah. of God was in the room. Yeah. And, um, I can't explain it. There was this sense by which, cause what you have is some guys who are like an eight, nine, I was at the men's campus, eight, nine months clean. Yeah. Some that are are a couple of years clean, coming back and serving, but you have mm-hmm. people that are like, they've been there a week. Yeah. And so yeah. they're just, they're in physical pain, just trying to be in the room. Mm-hmm. And, but the way these men were engaging in worship, like they've got nothing it's unhindered. Yeah. And so the first time I went to preach, I thought it had something to bring. What's cool is I thought, what do I have to bring? I don't know. I don't know anything about this, but they received more than I expected. Yeah. That, that was a blessing to me. And dude, I received way more than I expected. Sure. And so now I, I like, <laughs> I asked them, <laughs> I never ask anyone if I can speak anywhere except mm. for Wagner. I say, can you include me in your roster? Because oh. it's, it's such, and I I only yeah. share that to say like, that's what just clicked as you're sharing. It's like there's something there. And what I realized I loved about it, and I love my church and I love the church that um sent us. But what was different from being at Wagner than in a Sunday service is that a lot of people pretending that they weren't desperate and didn't mm-hmm. deserve to be with one another and before God. But at Wagner, it's kind of like, listen, it's obvious. I'm I'm at we Wagner. Have, yeah. Like I got nothing to hide at this point. We like you know it. why I'm here. Yeah, and there was it. this humility, and I just think and I would love to know what you think about this. I think that God's presence prefers that place. Like, I think he, like, I don't get how that works with the presence of God, but he's he's more tangible to my senses on that hill in Langley at Wagner Hills than almost anywhere else. What's going on there, man?
0: Here's what I think is happening is, is that the Beatitudes, for instance, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, we often hear, you know, the word blessed, we think, well, favored or lucky or whatever. But it actually the word blessed, I think, is an invitation. Jesus is inviting people into his life, that he is the poor spirit. He is the one who mourns. He is the meek. He is the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He is the merciful. And so when we are walking into the poverty of spirit, we're walking into the blessing of Jesus. So why wouldn't we want that? I mean, we used to, um, when we'd walk home from our, our church meetings on Sunday mornings, I'd have my kids with me and I'd go, uh, I'd always ask on the way, on three block walk home, I'd go, what did you hear today? And uh, sometimes um, uh, my, my one son would say, um, oh, well, nobody started screaming today. So that was good, you know, because sometimes people would come in and just start screaming and that, I said, well, what did you hear? And sometimes they remember something from the sermon, but I just remember one time walking back and one of my kids went, well, I heard that, uh, you know, I can't remember, was it Rob was three months clean today. You know, that's what I heard today that was mm-hmm. the message today and rob was 3 months clean today and uh, and Pete Gregg, the founder of 247 prayer came and visited us once and he talked about it for a couple for a couple years really cuz he said we they had a testimony time and i said what do you want to bless the lord for and he said it just was like a wave of people just yelling i i'm, I'm one week clean you know i was healed from cancer i was just and and he's like when they shouted hallelujah they meant it wow because their, their experience was desperate. I need the Lord. And, and I, boy, I just want more of that. And mm. I want to, I want our churches to experience more of that.
2: Hmm. Tell us about 24 seven prayer, about the work you're doing in Canada, the work you guys are doing internationally. And I'd love just to, for people to hear more about it.
0: Yeah. So I've, I've been involved since 99 and, and they're, The reason I got involved was because I grew up, as many people did in the church, hearing that prayer is the most important thing and then never seeing anybody budgeting for it. Mm -hmm. Um, Not in in the the annual budget or in our time or effort or anything like that. So um, I I accidentally found myself at a meeting where the thing was being launched uh, in 99. And I said, oh, here here are some people who are saying that prayer is the most important thing and you should just set a room and spend all your time in there praying. That sounds good to me. So, um, we took it back. I was with the Salvation Army in London, England, and we took it back and did a week there and then ran a week at a youth retreat and all the kids, all, we had a double-decker bus, which we decked out as a prayer room and they just were abandoning our program and just going to the bus to pray. Wow. I remember thinking this might be something.
2: And was this in um, Ontario at the time?
0: Well, this actually was in England still. Okay. Um, okay. But then I came back and, and was, was in Ontario And other people from Canada had been um, doing some 24-7 prayer stuff at the very beginning as well. And so we started doing that in a youth drop-in center, uh, Mm. non-churched teens, but they would come in and, and again, they were just at first super suspicious, but then, then just couldn't get them out of the room. It was so maddening, actually. And one kid, he wrote, we just couldn't get him out. And he wrote, I've tried every drug and he listed all the drugs that he had tried. He said, but nothing compares to the high of this room. And it was like, oh, and he was, he, I was praying at the end of the week, God, please don't send this teenager in at 2am in the morning. Cause I need an hour just to pray. I'm so tired from just leading teens to the Lord. Like I'm, it, it was, it was exhausting. Hmm. Um, how many came and just met the Lord in that place. So wow. we're like, okay, we think this is something. And so we've been doing this for the last, uh, you know, 18, 19 years in Canada, yeah. um, Mostly off the edges of our desk, to be honest. Mm-hmm. We all had full-time jobs and were just kind of on the side trying to promote prayer. And um, But recently, in the last couple of years, uh, we just have felt a freedom to make this our full-time gig. And uh, so we have a team now across Canada, a really incredible team of seasoned leaders in prayer um, who are, are just well-known in their communities, have been leading prayer communities for, for a decade or more. And are helping the church learn what it means to develop a culture, to create and cultivate a culture of prayer, mission, and justice from the inside out. And we've we've really felt a burden on our hearts to be um, praying with and for and alongside pastors, um, especially in this time, because we just we know how difficult it is. And mm. and honestly, my work with addicts has prepared me to work with pastors.
2: Come on. It, <laughs> we're,
0: we're, it, I love that line. It's, it's full on. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't like, I'm like, I'm really comfortable with drug dealers. I'm not super comfortable with senior pastors.
2: Yeah. We're but, the worst.
0: Well, you want to talk about people who, so in, in 12 steps, they say the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's connection hmm. and connection to God, connection to yourself, connection to the, to creation, connection to each other. and, so, uh, so many senior pastors are so disconnected from yeah. themselves, from God. Their prayer life is negligible. Um, just, there's just so much going on from each other, from people they can confess to, from friends. It's, it's brutal. And mm-hmm. there's almost nobody to talk to. And, uh, and so we're wondering why doesn't prayer take off in our church? Well, because, um, you know, the, the pastor, we want the, to help the pastor pray. And it's not a condemnation. It's not a judgment. It's not adding more things to your table. It's just saying, what were you made for? What did you mm. get into this for in the first place? It was because you love the Lord. You love Jesus. So let's just, let's call one another back there. Mm. And, and believe me that all the other stuff that you're trying to do, it's only going to get better by being in the presence of Jesus on a regular basis. So we try and help that and, and it's just sort of to help revive the church really in a way of like just breathing life in,
2: because
0: mm. um, there's no better mission strategy that I can imagine than just putting people in the room with Jesus for a little while and then letting them walk out into the world with glowing faces. That seems to me that the perfect mission strategy. We've also, I'll, I'll, I want I just want to mention one, one thing that we're doing. It's actually really cool. I'm yeah, please so do. get about it. Um, <laughs> that. And it came out of, again, just really an accident, but uh, there's a farm in Manitoba.
2: Oh, I love this. Yeah, tell yeah, us about it's, it. it.
0: It's so cool. Um, it's been owned by this one family for a long time, Mennonite Farm, two hours north of Winnipeg. And I was one of those people thinking, can anything good come from Manitoba? And then, uh, <laughs> you know, our, uh, so I apologize to anybody in Manitoba, but, you know, BC. And then
2: Jason we were- and Dory ended up in your life.
0: Yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah, but it's so it's, it's Jason's parents, it's, and he, he grew up on this farm, so we went there for a discernment week uh, to, to just pray, and I've longed to go to, to go and be on a farm for a long time, and, and on our way out, we just were thinking, this is so good, this is such a beautiful, it's a beautiful farm, organic and artisanal, and just, just incredible, prayer-based, and we thought, what if we invited people here, and so we're starting this month coming up uh, an apprenticeship, a farming apprenticeship and prayer, so it's learning how to farm, how to operate an artisanal bakery, and develop a rule of life in prayer for five wow. months on a gorgeous farm in central Manitoba. And uh, again, it just kind of came out of, of so favor cool. and it's, it's, it's incredible. In, in our, and who's, our who's
2: an ideal, who's an ideal like candidate for that? Like, is it someone like me married with three kids showing up on the farm or is it a student <laughs> out of university? Who's the ideal candidate for that?
0: Yeah. I mean, a, a student would be, would be great, but it's not just it's not just relegated to that. It's, it's somebody who, I mean, obviously you have to have five months free. For anybody who, who really wants to readjust their rhythm, honestly, because the rhythm of the city, the rhythm of the suburbs, the, the rhythms of Google, you know, the algorithms that we're all kind of living our lives by are, are not what we were made for. And the closer I think you can get to just getting your hands in the dirt and interacting with life and at the same time learning how to pray. Man, I, I mean, I want to do it.
2: Mm-hmm. I can't imagine well, a better When you scenario. described it, I literally thought to myself, <laughs> I know I'm like 20 years from being able to do it or 15 years too late. But man, um, I, I think there's something about it. Not only do I want people to send people from their church to find out about it, if, if it could serve someone. I also think it represents a kind of strategy that maybe is overlooked right now. And I really try not to be at all prescriptive on this podcast at all. I want to host a conversation. So please, I hope anyone listening doesn't hear this, but just something I'm processing. I think a lot about scale. Like even the questions I'm asking, like how do I move my whole church into this? How do I do this? And, and there's not, that's not wrong, but that's where I live often. Right. But when I think about disciples, the task of discipleship now in the chaos, world, uh, the kingdom of God is like, uh, it's viral. Like it trickles out, but sometimes our activities are addition. It's like, if we can get four, five, six people out of the city for a season Mm -hmm. to develop a rule of life, to get in touch with like their senses and to see what it is to create something and see someone like eat it. Like, and so I've just been thinking a lot about how do we do strategies where it's like, Hey, listen, like, for the 300 people in your congregation or the 50 or the thousand, whatever it is, we do that. We're, you know, we think about content online and Sunday services and midweek programs for youth. But I think there's also this piece of like, how do we help five or six people become monks in the middle of the city? Or like, does that make, help me flesh that out because I've been thinking a lot about this. Maybe you can add some texture to my thinking.
0: No, I think it's absolutely true. And, and I, I mean, I was talking with somebody about this this morning, honestly, that when, where you see great moves of the church, it is usually a very small number of people who gather together and just start taking things seriously. And just start taking each other seriously and start taking God seriously and a very, very small group of people. And and it tends to be fairly extreme. And, and then they can kind of, they actually can shift the church through that through that example and so I mean that's the the, the kind of g- the beautiful thing about the monastic tradition and the uh the sort of dynastic tradition of the church as a bigger body that needs to be there but but there are there is space for these houses of prayer or these little communities little monastic communities and honestly a Mennonite farm in Manitoba is the closest Canada gets to a monastic kind of you know existence um and, and, and just if you, if that shifts and we start to see it shift, I'm all about that little seed. And so is Jesus, all about that little seed being buried into something. And we know that that is the kind of thing that is going to, to shift the world. But the other thing, I mean, when I go to a church and they say, well, how do I, you know, people come up with very passion. How do I change my church? Say, well, you probably don't think about that. Think about how do you change your table? Hmm. You know, how do you change your prayer life? How do you change the people that you're spending time with that start there? And this is what we're trying to do with the farm is is say, come and, come and let yourself be changed uh, into a deeper uh, rhythm that is going to affect everything around you.
2: Hmm. Is there a word on your heart for the church in this time? And I don't just mean Aaron, but like Aaron and, and, and the community that you represent. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, there is. And, and I mean, every year I, I actually do this work of, of saying, is there something Lord that you want to say to your church? And, uh, last year, the beginning of 2020, um, I was preaching, I think it was either the last Sunday of 2019 or the first Sunday of 2020 in it for a group of churches in the downtown side. And, and I just, I, I had nothing else. All I had to come with was, um, get ready that's all I had. (laughs) I'm like, okay, I'll try and bulk that out a little bit. But the Lord is saying, get ready. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, prepare yourself, consecrate yourself. And I didn't know what it was for. I said, something's coming. I don't know what it is. And as I started working on that this year and just saying, Lord, what is, what do you have a word for your church? Um, The really immediate and strong impression. And I've just even been praying about it this week is again, is uh, I heard the Lord say, give it away. Would you just give it away? And, and I don't, again, I'm not trying to be prescriptive of what that means for each church. But if we're talking about what posture the church should be taking, I think, uh, in the world, um, uh, radical generosity is not the worst one.
2: Mm.
0: Would you just give it away and not try and hold on to things? I got the real sense again that we're, we've been trying to hold on to things that were never ours to hold on to. And the Lord wants us to open our hands and it's safe to open our hands and to give it away because his, his uh, mercies never cease. And his his blessing is abundant. And and if we believe that there's abundance, that we're living in a world of abundance with a God of abundance, then we can just freely give stuff away because freely we'll receive again. If we think that we're in a world of scarcity, then we're going to hold on tight to what we've got. So that was the word that I was, I've just been hearing for the church really Mm. strongly. Um, and, And one other that, so, you know, sit in that way that um, one other uh, just word that I've been sitting on for a long time and, and been letting it steer the direction of twenty 7 prayer, honestly, in my own life, because a few years ago I was, I was, again, sort of despairing. I, I get there pretty quickly <laughs> sometimes around the, the state of the church and I go, God, what's going on? What, what's the hope here? And God said to me, I want you to look to the First Nations people, and I want you to look to newcomers, the displaced, the immigrants. Look to the, their faith. Look to the, the churches there and take your lead from them. And so that's a lot of what we've been trying to do in 24-7 and in, in my own personal life. Um, another book I was going to recommend was Richard Twiss's uh, Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys. Really important book. Um, but those two things, give it away and and l- look to the leadership look to the example look to the faith of the first nations churches and to the the newcomers
2: hmm. well i'm really grateful for you aaron you've been so generous to me and uh, with your time today and uh i'm excited to continue these conversations so bless you man thanks for your time mm-hmm. thank you
1: we so appreciate Aaron taking the time to join Jason for that powerful conversation. I hope you all found that meaningful and challenging as you think about how God has positioned your church to serve and love those around you. If you want to grab a great book that Aaron wrote last year called Recovering from Brokenness and Addiction to Blessedness and Community, be sure to check the show notes for this episode at ccln.ca slash blog. Well, I can't believe it, but our next episode will be in September. So I hope you enjoy these final days of summer before the fall routine kicks back in. But we are also excited for a fresh year of ministry that many of your churches are starting. We're cheering you on, we're praying for you. We're trusting that God will provide and sustain and empower you in the work that you are doing. From our team to yours, we love you. Thanks for the work that you do. It matters. Let's keep praying and trusting God to do even greater things in Canada in this next year. All right, we will see you soon.